back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Hannah Abrams, and I'm joined by my friends and co-hosts, Tony Brew and Avi Cooper. Hey, guys. Hey, Hannah. Hi. Hello, hello. All right, today we are going to be discussing drug names, specifically how one medication's name says a lot about its development and its mechanism of action. As a warning, we will be using trade names in this episode. So, Tony, a lot of drugs have sort of like interesting origin stories for their names, but for this episode, you chose to explain to us why Cinemet, or Carbidopa Levodopa, has its name. Why this drug? Yeah, um, like so like a lot of people, I find the stories behind drug names to be fascinating. And when I first heard the story of Cinemet and how it got its name, I really thought it was cool. Because, and you noted this in the opening, it really does provide insights not only into how it's developed, but also its actual mechanism of action. It's 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 really kind of cool. And it might make sense to start to talk about Parkinson disease in the beginning. And this is the condition for which carbidopa levodopa is most commonly prescribed. So do you mind kind of orienting us to that, Tony? Yeah. So briefly, uh, as a reminder, the key pathologic feature of Parkinson's disease is the loss of cells in the substantia nigra. And what results from this is a decrease in dopamine levels in the brain. And the obvious response to this would be to just give these patients dopamine, just formulate an oral pill, have them take it, and then they get the dopamine back. But the problem is that dopamine doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. And so as a result, just giving dopamine to replace the brain dopamine deficiency isn't really a treatment option for Parkinson's disease. So how does carbidopa levodopa work? So even though dopamine can't cross the blood-brain barrier, its precursor, dihydroxyphenylalanine, can. Now, for this episode, we're just going to call that molecule dopa. I think that's going to be a lot easier. But once it's in the brain, dopa is actually converted to dopamine. And so making use of this knowledge that if you give dopa peripherally in the form of a pill, it can cross the blood-brain barrier and be converted to dopamine... Three sets of researchers, uh, George Kotsius, Melvin Van Wart, and Louis Schiffer, they gave DOPA to 16 patients with Parkinson's disease. And their results were published in 1967 in the New England Journal, and the results were positive in that the patients got better from the perspective of their Parkinson's symptoms. But the downside was that four out of 16 patients experienced neutropenia. And so that's kind of a high percentage uh, and it really prohibited the use of the drug. I'm confused, though. The levodopa that we give in levodopa carbidopa or Cinemet is dopa, right? I mean, and that drug doesn't cause neutropenia. So what gives? Yeah, so this is really fascinating. Uh, like a lot of molecules, dopa is chiral and has two enantiomers, right? So there's a, a left-handed version and a right-handed version. And then the study by Katsias the molecule given contained both the left and the right-handed enantiomers. But soon after, it was discovered that it's just the left-handed version, the L-DOPA, that's the active form. And it's actually the form that our body creates. And this allowed the administration of the medication just as L-DOPA without the D-DOPA, the dextra-DOPA. And actually, it turns out that the D-DOPA what was causing the neutropenia. So it was like the best of all worlds. Let's give what the body already makes, and we'll avoid giving the enantiomer that caused the neutropenia. Yeah, that's and quite so handy. It is handy, yes. And this introduced us to, of course, levodopa, where the levo is referring to levorotation, the left-handed chirality of this particular isomer. But we don't just give levodopa. 
There's also carbidopa. So what does the carbidopa do? Yeah, so the progress is obviously being made and and you know, we finally have a medication that can cross the blood-brain barrier, get into the brain and be converted to dopamine. But there were problems because with escalating doses to try to get more benefit to the patients, this was limited by GI side effects. And so for example, in one study, the reported rates of nausea and vomiting were 91% and 55%. That's that's pretty high. And what's interesting is that levodopa is largely inert. And its effects, as I mentioned earlier, are derived from the fact that it can cross the blood-brain barrier and it's converted to dopamine in the brain, where the dopamine actually has the effect. But the problem is that levodopa is also converted to dopamine peripherally. And this leads to all the GI side effects via activation of the dopamine 2 receptors in the area postrema of the in the medulla, in the brain. But if the area postrema is in the brain and dopamine can't cross the blood-brain barrier. So how can it cause nausea via activation of the area postrema? Yeah, I, you know, I didn't remember this fact from anatomy, but when I read about this topic, I was reminded that this area postrema or postrema, postrami, postrema, uh, is actually sitting outside the blood-brain barrier. So even though it's a, a medullary structure, it sits outside the blood-brain barrier and therefore can be reached by peripheral dopamine. And in fact, one of the main roles of the area postrema is to sense blood toxins and cause us to vomit and like, let's get rid of these toxins. But fortunately for us and for patients who have Parkinson's disease, there is a drug that kind of perfectly addresses all of the issues with levodopa. And, you know, my guess is that you guys already know what the name of that molecule is. Hmm. <laughs> Could it be carbidopa? No, no. No, no, no can't possibly. <laughs> Could it be no, carbidopa, as we call it in Boston? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So carbidopa, <laughs> the beauty of it is that it inhibits dopa decarboxylase, and that's the enzyme that converts levodopa to dopamine. And so trials suggest that if you administer the carbidopa alongside the levodopa, the rates of nausea decrease dramatically. And so this finally gets to like, all right, how did Cinemet get its name? So the namers of this new combination medication, they made reference to the added benefit of the carbidopa added to the levodopa. And so cinemet is seen without, and that's uh, Latin for without, emet, and that's Latin for vomiting. So together you get seen, emet, or cinemet. That is so elegant. It's, uh, it's so beautiful. It is beautiful and elegant, but it's also the name of the drug is the is reflecting the side effect that it's avoiding by having the combination <laughs> that's literally the name yeah it's a little bit like we're giving you this drug because the earlier version of it was so bad and we're going to name it for how bad the earlier version was in terms of the side effect profile that's a good point <laughs> but it's not like i don't know what the latin word is for tremor but it's not like <laughs> sin tremor you know it's sinimet <laughs> Yeah, but it, 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 what's what's cool about the name is it's it kind of gets the idea that it's not the cinemet that's causing the benefit for the Parkinson's. It's actually, and, and frankly, it's not even the levodopa. It's the dopamine. Like, neither levodopa nor carbidopa is doing anything for the patient with Parkinson's disease. It's the dopamine, which only this combination will allow for its, like, really high concentration delivery to the brain. It's, I just find it really cool. That is really cool. Anything else you want to discuss, Tony? 
Well, I'm more interested in what your favorite origin stories are for for drug names. So I don't know, Avi, do you have one that you really like? Mine is Montelukast, which is a drug that I use very often in asthma clinic and in the outpatient setting and you know for patients with asthma or allergies. And it turns out that Montelukast, the Mont part of the name is because the drug was actually developed in Montreal. And so the the name Montelukast is in kind of an homage to the city of the origin of the drug, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, there are actually a couple other ones that have the same theme, like Nystatin is apparently named for the New York State Health Department, where a lot of the research was done for New York Statin or Nystatin. And then uh, Warfarin, I think many of us have heard, is from the University of Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation. So Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundations or Warfarin. I'm actually curious. So Hannah, what's, what's your favorite one? Okay, so my favorite of all time has got to be Ambien, which is the brand name, uh, but A-M-B-N. It's just like, (laughs) I think so funny. But then I also really love that a lot of the ones that have to do with the coagulation cascade will just give you the answer, like in the the name, like Apixaban and Rivaroxaban being XA or factor 10A. And then the other one, I don't actually know if it's named this way or this is just how I remember it, but Abciximab um, is an antagonist of glycoprotein 2B3A and two times three is six. I hope it's named for that reason, (laughs) but that's how I always remembered it too. It's it's named that way now. (laughs) In my head, it's named that way. Yeah, we'll put in the show notes um, on the website a bunch of other examples that came up after I posted a tutorial on this topic. Just tons and tons of people responded with their favorites. And I'll mention just one more. And um, so the serolimus, the generic name uh, for serolimus is rapamycin. And it turns out that rapamycin is a natural product that was isolated from a bacteria found on the island of Rapa Nui, which is Easter Island. And I heard this story uh, on an episode of Radiolab, and it was just sort of out of this world amazing. And so we'll also link to that because it's it's well worth a listen. So any other ones that you guys want to mention? I think the metoprolol is really cool. Well, so the brand name for metoprolol is Low Presser, which does make it easier. Um, but then is this really true that it was possibly named as Me Too Prolol, like also me, like as a, as a Me Too drug for um, propranolol? That's what someone wrote on, yeah, someone wrote that on Twitter that, you know, propranolol came out and it was like, you know, selling like hotcakes. And and so the developers were like, we need our own beta blocker, you know, me too, prolol. I don't know. I guess it's possible. Um, I'm not well pressed. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, that went over my head and the the idea that low presser lowers your blood pressure, it just, like so many of these just go right over my head. It's, it's kind of sad. But not cinnamon. <laughs> BID for macrobid, that macrobid is nitroferentoin dosed BID. I did not know, which is so great. So many incredible, incredible drug names uh, just like waiting to be explored. I, I hope that people will tag us on Twitter if they have any other interesting ones that they like. This is so cool. I, I, yeah. I love little histories like this. It's so cool. It, we could, unfortunately, and the amazing thing is we have a list of like another 40 others we could go on, but we won't. <laughs> All right. So instead, Tony, can you give us some take-home points? Yeah. So these take-home points are just going to relate to Cinemed, so forgive me. Um, So we'll start with the idea that Parkinson's disease results from a decrease in brain dopamine, and levodopa is converted to dopamine in the brain, and that helps to treat the symptoms. 
But uh, the conversion in the periphery of levodopa also occurs, and this leads to nausea and vomiting. And what's really amazing is that carbidopa kind of handles this perfectly by decreasing the peripheral conversion of levodopa to dopamine, allowing it to cross the blood-brain barrier and get converted to dopamine there. And this really mitigates the nausea that results um, from giving the, the levodopa peripherally. And, you know, this is the, some wily uh, namer at the pharma company for a cinema decided let's make use of that and come up with kind of a catchy name. I think also what I love about this story is it helps you understand how the drug works, why it's been able to be tolerated, you know, going through those iterations. So I think it's it, this story works on a basic level as well. Just kind of if people are students out there, residents kind of wanting to learn and understand Parkinson's disease and the pathophys. So thanks a lot. Oh, Jenny. I thought you were talking about uh, Ambien there with that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Okay. Just rambling on. <laughs> Well, that wraps up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. Thanks, as always, for joining us. As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been The Curious Clinicians. 